Hello and welcome to the My Picture House podcast. My name is Jamie Lynch. This is the podcast where we talk about the films that made us, the films that still play on the walls of the cave inside our heads, inside our skulls, sort of constantly in the background and influence who we are since the first time that we came into contact with them. Today's episode is going to be about my favorite film by one of my favorite film directors, and it's Dead Ringers by David Cronenberg. But first, let me tell you, there's two types of people in this world. No, of course, there's not two types of people in this world, but how often have you heard that sort of dichotomous formulation trotted out? It seems to be something quite natural to human beings to try to break things down and break people down into one side or the other of um, any sort of argument. Or if not argument, just, I guess, in that sort of yin-yang breakdown. You could say that there are people who are more philosophical and that there are people who are more psychological. People who are more philosophical then would be people who are more motivated by ideas, big ideas, arguments, and people who are philosophical, sorry, people who are psychological would be more motivated by thoughts and feelings. You could, and the reason why I'm addressing this is because people do sometimes tend to break art down into largely philosophically motivated art and largely psychologically motivated art and sort of separate the two. So they might say in terms of authors that people like J.G. Ballard, William Burroughs, Samuel Beckett, that those people were more philosophical writers, more motivated by those really big ideas, and that someone like Henry James, a lot of crime authors, I imagine someone like Patricia Highsmith, that they would be more motivated by psychology and feelings and thoughts. That tends also to, to go along with being more heavily plotted and putting people in situations, putting readers in situations, or if we're talking about films, putting viewers in situations where you imagine, what would I do in this situation if it were me? If we're looking at films, I think that um, films by, gosh, let's say, uh, Robert Bresson would be certainly on the side of um, philosophical films. Um, and very, very many films, let's say, uh, if we're looking at really great film directors, someone like John Cassavetes would be on the psychological side, which is much more about the complexities and the ins and outs of human relationships and thoughts and feelings. Obviously, as I talk about this, I'm very aware that that's not really how people break down. There's not just two types of people. That's not really how art breaks down, 
books or films or any kind of art. But it is sometimes how people think about and criticize films. And the reason I started with this sort of very flawed idea is because I believe that David Cronenberg himself, in a way, may have at least started out believing himself to be on a particular side of this um, of this um, philosophical art on one side, psychological art on the other side. And I think as a younger man, he probably thought of himself very firmly in a camp with philosophical artists and philosophical filmmakers as opposed to psychological artists and psychological filmmakers. And the film we're going to talk about today is um, Cronenberg's excellent Dead Ringers from 1988. I saw it first probably a couple of years, maybe maybe three years after that um, in the early 1990s. And I saw it first on television. It's another one of those amazing films that I saw first on television. And um, and it's interesting to me to think back. This is television in my mum and dad's um, front room uh, back in Montpellier Gardens. Um, or if I saw it when I was living, you know, when I left home, it was little sort of often kind of portable size televisions, big box televisions um, that I had in, in flats that I lived in. And it didn't really, as much as I love going to the cinema and still love going to the cinema, as much as I love the big screen experience, it's interesting to me that it never really stopped me being blown away by a film if it was the right film to blow me away. And there's a lot that we're going to say about the way uh, David Lynch shot Dead Ringers, uh, the, 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 um, the set design, the cinematography, which is really striking in this movie. And, but even on a small screen, even on a little television screen back in the 90s, um, all those things came through, all those things had their effect, all those things impressed me both at the conscious and unconscious level and continued to, um, even in that sort of very limited format, uh, with that very limited delivery device. I still got the Cronenberg virus, I still became part of the project um, very, very strongly yes and pretty much instantly infected um but as i said cronenberg probably someone who started his own career um he started his he started his interest in art um in terms of writing i think he wanted to be a writer when he was younger he was so hugely influenced though um this is something that he says himself so hugely influenced by people like William S. Burroughs that he found it almost impossible to find his own voice, as they say. He was sort of writing what we'd call now, I guess, William Burroughs fan fiction. And this was a big problem for him. So when he discovered filmmaking, and he jumped into filmmaking really, really, um, really quickly, um, lots to do with Canadian tax laws, back when he was starting making films and and a lot to do with his own sort of his own sort of chutzpah in terms of um, borrowing money and finding ways to get money to make his early experimental features um, stereo and crimes of the future he jumped in really at the deep end and started making feature films very quickly in his filmmaking career 
even if they were um, they were shot without um, synchronous sound so they were shot um, without sound and then sound was overdubbed over them um, and not in a sort of dialogue way just uh, ideas and narration and music so they were quite um, arty they were still 35 millimeter feature films he didn't um, mess around with 16 millimeter he went straight to 35 millimeter basically uh, and made feature length films which is very bold very daring and he is a, a person when you read Cronenberg on Cronenberg or see interviews with him he's he's a very sort of quiet uh, intellectual um, I guess upper middle class type of person but he is also very very confident you can tell and very very um, very dedicated uh, very enthusiastic about filmmaking and something of, of a perfectionist um, but yeah he would have been very much on that side of uh, this fake line between philosophical art and um, psychological art and he would have been dealing very much in the big idea side the philosophical side however we all know from 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 watching films from reading books and from living life and from being human beings that those um those hard dichotomies don't exist i, I talked about the yin yang symbol earlier on actually the yin yang symbol really strongly emphasizes the fact that those dichotomies don't exist because when i first encountered david cronenberg and started reading more and learning more about David Cronenberg. I found it strange that the critical emphasis was so much on on him as a sort of a cold philosophical filmmaker. Because Dead Ringers broke my heart. Dead Ringers was something that deeply, deeply moved me at, a, at an emotional and personal level. And when I started to go back and look at his earlier, more explicitly horror films uh, like Shivers and Rabid and The Brood and Scanners and Videodrone and The Dead Zone, all of which he had made before 1988's Dead Ringers, they all moved me. They all, to me, presented essential elements of the human condition, of the human problem. And every single one of them moved me in a very deeply emotional way. So there was a contradiction there, um, a contradiction which I think was useful for me to be confronted with at that age in my sort of uh, late teens and early 20s, to be confronted with and to have to think about how foolish it was perhaps that I was going down a path at that stage of overly simplifying what I thought was great art and what I thought was lower art of what I thought of as um as what I thought of as really important and what I thought of was of lesser importance and to be made to see in that yin yang way actually how one thing becomes the other how someone like David Cronenberg, who seems to and is really dedicated to 
presenting ideas and using images, using the editing process of juxtaposing images together to to create um, to create a, a discourse, to create a discussion, to create a debate um, on the screen about big philosophical ideas of identity and duality and meaning, um, all of those things, at the same time, is always presenting an emotional story, is always presenting a human story. And on the other hand, you know, we'll talk, we will talk at some point in this series about a John Cassavetes movie or two. I guess that's probably not too big a secret to let out of the bag. But um, Cassavetes, with his, with his, his obsessive focus on the intimate, on the everyday, on on moment-to-moment human relationships, cannot help but deal with the big questions of identity and aging and the meaning of life and all those big things too. I'd like to talk a little bit about the issue of recommendation. There's no way around the fact that every film I talk about on this podcast is one that I'm recommending. I definitely want people to find these films and see these films. And they're not all that easy to find at the moment. But the other side of that is I'm recommending them so strongly because these are films that something in them sparked off something in me at a particular time in life and to sort of quote Nick Cave, lit the blue touch paper straight to my heart and changed something about me and changed something about the way I saw the world and lived my life afterwards. So it is important to put a little bit of a disclaimer quite seriously on all this and and make it clear that this is this is powerful medicine um once you're exposed to these films once you're exposed to these viruses um they do get inside you they are you know the parasite gets inside and burrows its way in and changes things changes your body changes your mind changes the way you see the world it might make you see the world differently for a day or a week or a month or forever and definitely make the world these films will definitely make the world a more interesting place but they can sometimes make the world a darker place a scarier place the experience can certainly be disturbing and while i am recommending these films to you to go out and to find and to see if you can and to talk to me about if you want to i am also saying you know it's also should be very clear that um they will have an effect You need to be prepared for that. A plot summary for Dead Ringers, 1988, directed by David Cronenberg, produced by David Cronenberg and Mark Boyman, screenplay David Cronenberg, Norman Schneider, based on the book Twins by Barry Wood and Jack Griezmann. In Toronto, Elliot and Beverly Mantle are famous. 
Not only are they identical twins, but they run a successful gynecology clinic. They live together and share everything. Glory, emotions, experiences, and women. Visiting actress Claire Niveau attends the clinic unable to bear children. The twins discover that she is a rare trifurcate, possessing three entrances to her womb. After Elliot sleeps with her and passes her on to his baby brother, Beverly begins to fall in love with Claire. On discovering that she has been sleeping with two men, Claire is disgusted, leaving Beverly distraught and Elliot unmoved. Beverly's love for Claire begins to come between the brothers. Haunted by fears of separation, he begins, like Claire, to take more and more prescribed drugs. As Elliot continues to climb the career ladder and Claire leaves for another film assign assignment, Beverly descends into a pill-popping melancholia and madness. That's the um, part of, not all of, the uh, summary of the film Dead Ringers that's um, on page 184 of the hardback edition of Cronenberg on Cronenberg by, um, published by Faber and Faber. Dead Ringers starts with um, the opening credits, which are featured on a shocking red sort of scarlet background with anatomical drawings and diagrams and Howard Shore's score. The score is very important, particularly as it's introduced right at the beginning of the film, because it establishes that it's okay to view this film as a romance, rather than necessarily a horror movie or a science fiction movie or a David Cronenberg movie, if you were coming to it with certain kinds of preconceptions. The score is unashamedly sweet and romantic, and it tells you right from the beginning that the undercurrent here, the subtext here is, is tragic and romantic. Um, and, and that is the, the main focus throughout the whole film. It's David Cronenberg's version of a tragic romance, but it is most certainly a tragic romance. Rewatching the film now, I see it primarily as a series of set pieces. And, and the word set is very important. Almost the entire film happens on interiors, very controlled, very designed interiors. There's a few shots, a few um, mostly not so important shots that take place outside. In fact, there are times in the film when there's a, a shot that takes place in the exterior outside and it feels unnecessary and jarring there's a there's a point where um beverly collapses and has to be taken to hospital and there's a transition shot between him collapsing and um being in hospital of an ambulance just driving down the road which i i guess is supposed to um bridge that gap between the two between the two locations 
but it feels unnecessary. It actually feels like the only unnecessary shot and the only unnecessary scene in the film. It feels it feels wrong. Um, other than that, there's really only one. There's a there's an exterior, very brief exterior, um, just outside a a conference center. There's maybe one um, exterior shot, although it's it's inside a quad um, in a university where um, Beverly makes a, an aborted phone call um, to to Claire. That that's um, an integral part of the film. That's an important shot. But other than that, everything takes place in interiors that, as I said, are really heavily designed, both to allow for the 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 sort of what was i think innovative photography techniques that allowed them to produce really seamless really technically astounding shots with with the you know the two brothers both both placed by jeremy irons and they had to be built that way and you had to be able to control the cameras and the sets which i think necessitated a lot of it happening on interiors but also it's it's very much that as David Cronenberg has said himself that fishbowl feel that idea that you are looking at these characters in a very claustrophobic fishbowl type world which again cleverly um calls back to the opening scene a, a very clever opening scene of the two brothers when they're children discussing why humans have to have sex and how if if humans were like fish and lived in water, we wouldn't have to have sex in the same way because the females would lay eggs and the male would would ejaculate their sperm onto those eggs in the water. Um, but because we don't live in water, we have to internalize the water, and that necessitates, you know, that that means that we need to to have sex. Um, it's a scene in which you you really do establish the brothers' attitude to to life in many ways, their experimental attitude to life. When they think about this, the first thing they want to do is is have an experiment, um, turn it into something that's experimental and scientific. And that sort of um, that stays true uh, for both brothers throughout the film, um, even as we see the, the the very obvious differences in their character and personality, as um, as the film goes on, you know, and within those within those um, set pieces and that that really skilled cinematography, you then have um, some great performances. Obviously, Jeremy Irons playing the two brothers, he really he really does do an amazing job. I mean this as a compliment, but um, so one of the brothers, Elliot, is essentially quite sleazy and smarmy and narcissistic strange word to use in the context perhaps um or apt quite narcissistic self-obsessed um quite cold quite nasty and beverly much more um sweet much much nicer much more vulnerable jeremy irons i've i've always as i said i mean this as a compliment he's someone i've always um found very believable in nasty parts in smarmy parts um he has that feeling about him for me and again i i mean that as a compliment he plays those parts really really well but i'm also really struck by how well he plays the sweet and vulnerable beverly in in this um in in this film um and uh, um of course um 
he's not the only um he's not the only really really fine actor he's not the only person who gives a really really fine performance uh in the film Genevieve Bijot also gives an an amazing performance the the development of how she reacts when she finds out that she's been lied to that there are that there are two brothers and that she's been sleeping with with both of these brothers while she thought you know there was only one is she does a a wonderful job with that the next crucial element of the film's success is the dialogue you very quickly notice how good the dialogue is in the sense that it's really clever you could stop any scene five or ten times and just think about what's ju what's just been said there'll be something that you could think about from five different angles and it will bring up really very um, it's all very resonant to bring up lots of different um thoughts and feelings but what's really important about the dialogue is this constant undercurrent of verbal irony that goes on right throughout the film and the film really does depend on it and it's very very difficult to keep it subtle enough so that um it doesn't become too obvious and become too you know you don't just know you don't realize all the time this this effort at verbal irony but it's there all the time doing its job and underlining the the the, the tone of the film and the feeling of the film all the way through you know whether it's near the beginning of the film the two brothers talking about how um how um claire nouveau is an actress and therefore a professional liar right at the time when she's being sincere with them and they are lying completely to her in a horrible way in a criminal way um in a really dreadful way or as you get close to the end where you know um beverly is constantly talking about how the women's insides are wrong and the women's insides are mutating and he needs to build design and build these um these new instruments for operating on mutant women you know right at the time when actually it's his mind which is going wrong it's his it's his uh mind that's broken and it's his mind that's mutating um And then there's the central metaphor of the film, the twins metaphor. Um, that has to be dealt with. Um, Cronenberg himself, reading again Cronenberg on Cronenberg, Cronenberg talks a lot about how actual twins and identical twins have approached him and said how good they think the um, the film how well the film represents the experience of being twins i i have my doubts about that reading cronenberg on cronenberg and seeing other interviews with him he is certainly a man blessed with self-confidence he doesn't seem to doubt himself very much um i see the film working much more as a the, the that idea of the identical twins is much more as a metaphor it works for me, much better when you think of Beverly and Elliot as one person. Um, one person imaginatively split into two bodies. Um, thus giving you the sort of the 
a sort of an obvious metaphor for the struggles that every individual has with with who they are and the different sides of their personality and finding balance in their lives and trying to keep a personality together and how difficult it can be just to keep one personality together and indeed Cronenberg is very clear in when he talks about a lot of his films that things should not be taken literally you know or you shouldn't look to 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 make things too specific that you know that his themes are big themes of life and death aging and illness rather than you know when you talk about the fly and people try to make that film about um the aids ep epidemic and Cronenberg was very careful to say no it's 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 about it's not about something that specific it's about and that doesn't even work in terms of the plot and the dynamic of the film but it's actually about aging in general dying in general and those bigger things and I, I think that's true with with Dead Ringers it works much better I, I imagine I'm, I'm not a twin so I'm really not sure and I know that twins will not have Twins will have their individual experiences of um, of whether or not they think this is an accurate representation of being a twin or being an identical twin, and that's not for me to say. But I think the film works much better just using that idea of identical twins as a a metaphor upon which you can build ideas of a disintegrating personality and the difficulty of maintaining a personality and balancing a personality for everybody um, all the time. And even in Dead Ringers, you know, there's, there's very little attempt at, at realism. It's everything works internally, but once you step outside the film, you think about it, um, nothing in the film really looks like things would in real life. The the scenes of surgery, for instance, they are completely made up and they work really well. But the famous um, red gowns for the College of College of Cardinals, as they call it, scenes um, for the for the surgery. This is not what a real surgical room looks like. It's not what a real operation looks like. This is all very much in this claustrophobic world world of the film. Um, and only within that world. And the film is stronger for that, I believe. If you enjoyed that episode of the podcast and you'd like to um, express your appreciation uh, in a more concrete way, you can go over to the Ko-Fi website, ko-fi.com forward slash mypicturehouse and leave me um, a one-off donation. Uh, buy me a cup of coffee. It would be extremely appreciated. Um, also, of course, if you'd like to contact me, you can do so on Twitter at um, PictureHousePod or by email, PictureHousePod at gmail.com. And I'd love to hear from people who are revisiting these films maybe for the first time in, um, in a long time and any memories that you have of them. I'd love to hear about films that I haven't talked about yet that mean a great deal to you, that changed the way you saw the world and that live in the peapod um, inside you that contains all your most important um, associations. 
And if you're someone coming to these films for the very, very first time, I would really love to hear from you too. Once again, thank you so much for listening and um, hopefully you'll tune in again next time. Um, bye. Slán agus